You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an associate teaching professor at Syracuse University and an attorney admitted to the New York State Bar, using her legal training and expertise to teach, presentation, advocacy, and argumentation. She is interested in political and legal discourse and created courses that reflect those concerns. Her latest book is titled, When Freedom Speaks, The Boundaries and Boundlessness of Our First Amendment Right. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Lynn Grinke. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. As you mentioned, I am a teaching professor at Syracuse University, and my interest is in argument, argumentation and advocacy. I've also taught uh, courses in political communication, and the book is a, um, a, the, from the genesis of my class in First Amendment jurisprudence. So your latest book is titled, When Freedom Speaks, The Boundaries and Boundlessness of Our First Amendment Right. So I wanted to start um, by talking a bit about the history of free speech itself before getting to, to the more pressing contemporary issues, starting with the words in the First Amendment itself. So the First Amendment states that Congress, quote, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble. Notice that's how, how, how that's incredibly broad and vague language, and the amendment specifically specifies that, quote, Congress shall make no law, meaning state governments weren't originally bound to uphold those rights. So, Lynn, for our audience that isn't familiar, can you tell us a bit about how the First Amendment was understood when the Bill of Rights was passed? Well, certainly when the Bill of Rights was passed, um, it was part of the federal constitution, so it applied to the federal government. Um, there was a there was a whole dispute between, when when the when the constitution was passed. The the Bill of Rights, in fact, was passed several years after the the body of the constitution, and that was because of a dispute between federalists and anti federalists, those that believed in a strong central national government, and those who wanted to reserve most of the powers to the states. We are still seeing that play out today. I need not mention the Dobbs case, the, the case that um, overturned Roe versus Wade, which is very much now um, another discussion of federalism, the 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 um, the power the, the power dispute between the national and the and the federal government. So the first ten amendments were originally um, just applied to the federal government, um, and we need to understand that when we're when we're talking about the Bill of Rights and when we're talking about the the relationship between the government and individuals, that's what the Constitution is about, just about the government and non-governmental entities, um, that uh, we talk about government power versus individual rights. So the Bill of Rights talks about the rights of individuals vis-a-vis -vis the government. And so you're right. In the beginning, it was all about the, the relationship, the power and the rights between the federal government and um, non-governmental entities. Okay, so jumping forward about a century and a half or so, uh, courts throughout the 20th century wrestled with the question of limitations on the First Amendment. So in Schenck versus the United States, the Supreme Court established the clear and present danger test, meaning, for example, you can't yell a bomb on an airplane or, or fire in a crowded theater. 
then in Brandenburg v. Ohio, um, that established the Brandenburg test, which essentially means that you can incite imminent lawless action. So, Lynn, can you tell us a bit about the bounds of the First Amendment that, that have been established over time and, and the tests that the courts will use to determine whether your speech, for example, constitutes incitement? Yes, absolutely. Uh, to begin, uh, we need to understand that there has been a growth in our understanding of the First Amendment and that initially the courts and the interpretation of the First Amendment was much more um, towards the government power as opposed to individual rights. And the growth towards individual rights really started happening in the uh, middle of the last century, that Brandenburg case that you speak of. Prior to that, when people uh, spoke against the government, uh, the the courts were much more um, willing to restrict speech. Um, and that's what the clear and present danger test came out of the Schenck case, which was during the, the First World War. Um, and what the court had said was, if words have a bad tendency, basically a bad tendency to, in, to, to lead to criminal behavior, really violence, and it, or in that sense, it was also a about anti-union and anti-communist speech. If speech has a bad tendency to lead the audience to these criminal behaviors, then the government can shut down speech. Um, that was obviously quite speech restrictive. Um, and um, over time, beginning also in that in that time, um, the, the courts, some of the dissenting opinions, Justice Holmes in particular in the Abrams case said, you know, this bad tendency is too speech restrictive. We really need to only restrict speech when absolutely necessary. The def uh, He didn't say these words, but the fact is what he was trying to say is the default option should be to protect speech. And um, over time, that is what happened. And that's when came the Brandenburg case, which, which didn't overrule or overturn the clear and present danger case. In fact, the clear and present danger uh, uh, test still does exist, uh, particularly in situations where there's a national security concern. But the um, Brandenburg case was much more speech protective, which basically said we can only restrict speech in situations where it looks like it's imminent that that criminal behavior is going to occur. We can only criminalize speech or shut speech down when someone is intending to incite criminal behavior. And we can most of the time that's about violence. Uh, they intend to incite site violence, and it is occurring in a situation that's incendiary, that is immediate, and there has there's no time for reflection So, by the audience. So in those situations, we can shut down speech. But this has been, this has been the growth of First Amendment jurisprudence over the course of, you know, almost the last century now. So this incitement issue is, is always one that I've had a, a tough time with. Um, because it's 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 sort of hard to understand exactly why, um, you know, the the fact that one person says something means another person is compelled to do it. So, for example, if I if I walk up to you and we're 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 you know um, out in the city together, and I say go rob that store, um, you know, am I am I inciting you? Uh, if if there's a crowd and I say go rob that store, does that suddenly become illegal? Um, do do people in in that crowd sort of lose their their own individual free will not to rob a store or, or commit violent action or that sort of thing so that's that's sort of what where where i'm struggling with this here is that how how does one person you know they, they can say whatever how how can they sort of um you know 
how does that override someone's individual responsibility not to not to commit lawless action? That, that's such a wonderful question. Um, and we can start out with communication theory. My background is in, is in communication theory and rhetorical theory. And when we start talking about communication theory, initially in the clear and present danger test, for instance, the understanding was that the audience reacts um, immediately or um, the, the analogy is it's called a hypodermic needle um, theory of communication, which is so interesting right now in, in this time of, um, of vaccination issues. But the, but, the, but the theory is that when you vaccinate a population, the population will react um, homogeneously, that they, that everyone will have the same immune response to the vaccination. And the analogy was to speech, that when you, when you speak to an audience, that an audience is going to have a homogeneous reaction. So if you speak to an audience and, and urge them um, to to respond in a violent uh, violent action, they're going to respond immediately. Well, of course, we now know that was, as I said, the hypodermic needle or the magic bullet theory of communication um, that has also evolved into what's called the limited effects theory. And what we know is that audiences actually do have a lot of control over their own response. And in fact, they're not homogeneous. And in fact, people respond differentially to the same communication. So what the incitement test is all about, and it's really on a one-to-many, it, it, you have to understand it as um, maybe groupthink, and it has to be in an incendiary situation. The whole concept of this incitement is it must happen. A speaker must intend to incite, and it must they must intend to incite when the situation is incendiary so the government so the the um the audience is not is is um subject to groupthink and is not taking the time to step back and maybe and think about it and critically assess the communication before they just act and i think if you understand it as groupthink in an incendiary situation on a one to many it becomes easier to understand Okay, so next, um, I wanted to talk about sort of the, the the most famous recent example of incitement, which is the January 6th Capitol riot. Now, as horrific as that was, and, and for all the things that you can say about President Trump's rhetoric following the election, I think it's very difficult to make the case for incitement on January the 6th. Not only did he specifically mention the word peacefully several times, there were no specific calls for violent or illegal behavior. Yet the word incitement has become almost synonymous with January 6th. So, Lynn, do you think President Trump's speech, um, based on the test that the courts have, have handed down, constituted incitement? And if not, why do you think that so many people from the media, celebrities, political opponents all maintain that it was? Such an interesting question as well. Initially, I would have said no. I don't think he incited incited um, the violence. Um, and, and just as an aside, um, the people that engaged in the violence were not involved in political speech. They were involved in criminal behavior. The fact that they believed the 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 election was stolen and they wanted to make a political statement was just fine. The manner in which they made the statement was not that was criminal. But as to the as to former president Trump's rhetoric. Um, 
initially what I, again, it has to be a person, you have to show that the person intends to incite. And I don't think that that was obvious initially. In addition to that, the question is actually who who incited. Would would that group have gone on to to engage in the behaviors they would have? Had President Trump said, good morning, the election was stolen, we need to let them know that that this is not okay. Would the, what that crowd have gone on to do what they did. And my initial uh, my initial thought was, I think so. So because all of the incitement really happened beforehand and over the internet, which is a whole other issue, whether or not the Brandenburg test actually even works anymore because of this imminent, this, this imminent characteristic of, of the test. Um, so initially I would have said, um, no, I, I don't think that President Trump intended to incite. And of course he did use the words peacefully, but just because he used them doesn't I think you have to you have to take the, the the entire speech in context. A single word doesn't doesn't undo all of the other words that that he did say, even if he said it multiple times. So initially, I would have said that since the January sixth hearing, though, we've learned something new. We have learned that he knew people were carrying arms. In fact, he didn't want people to be to be um, eliminated from the ellipse, to not be allowed into the ellipse. He wanted the magnetometers to stop uh, scanning people so that people could come into to the ellipse with their weapons. He said, they're not after me. Um, so he understood that people had weapons. He understood that they weren't after him. They were after somebody else. Um, Congress people, maybe maybe uh, former Vice President Pence in particular. So I think given that new information that he understood and he intended his words to keep the, keep the energy up and the violence going forward, I think now there is an argument to be made that he incited the crowd. Okay. Um, sorry. Can you can you explain that in in a little bit more detail? Um, how? I, I mean, I, I I understand that he allowed people into the eclipse or wanted people allowed into the ellipse who had their their arms, you know, on them. How how does that make the leap to incitement then? Because he understood that people were ready to commit violence. He understood that the people, I think that an argument could have been made beforehand that he um, that he believed that these individuals were angry about the uh, about the election, that they believed the election was stolen and they wanted to make their voices heard by marching to the Capitol without violence. He said peacefully. I think once you understand that he knew that there were that there were weapons um, that, that that these individuals had weapons, and he's talking about walking to the the Capitol. Even if he said the words peacefully, he said, "Let's go to the Capitol," knowing these people had weapons on them. I think to to think that he didn't intend and understand the likelihood that violence was going to occur as a result of his language, I think, is a stretch. Okay, um, that's 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 sort of really a really interesting leap there. Um, I think perhaps as a as a as a you know a Republican president, um, the the fact that people are carrying arms doesn't in and of itself mean that people are ready to commit violence, right? Because I mean there are, there are a lot of states across this country um, where you know most people ha- are are armed most of the time um, when they're in public. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people who, who just carry their sidearm day in, day out every day. It doesn't mean that they're willing to commit violence. Um, 
So if he wanted people to to be able to carry their arms, um, you know, that that may or that that may well have just been a, a protection of, or you know, his belief in their right to to be carrying, you know, their weapons as they see fit, you know, pursuant to their Second I, Amendment rights. I think context counts. Not, they didn't only have guns; they had other things. But I think context counts, and that's what and that's what Brandenburg is all about. Brander, Brandenburg's about context that you have to intend to incite. The words have to be likely incite, and it has to be in an incendiary situation. I think. Once he understood that, first of all, it was illegal to have to have arms at the time at the ellipse or even in um, in uh, certainly guns in D.C. at the time. Um, and I think he understood that um, uh, as again, context counts. I think he understood that his messages were being given to people, um, whether or not they had the right to carry their arms. If they did or they didn't, I don't think that that's I think that's a side issue. I think he understood that they were carrying these arms not to hurt him. They were carrying arms. And I think he understood in under the context and under the anger that was that was palatable at the time that um, these individuals were ready to rumble. And um, and and his words gave them additional, not the only, and I'm not saying he's the only person that incited violence because I don't believe he was, but I think he gave them, I think he was one, one, one of the, the matches that, that, um, that lit the flames there. So I do believe the context it's context that matters here. Okay. Um, so I, I think uh, I I do want to move on, but um, there's just just one last question about January 6th, just because it is a very, very interesting case study in the bounds Mm -hmm. of what counts as incitement. Um, I I think um, the the thing there is that, okay, so if he knows that the the crowd is armed or certain people in the crowd are carrying arms um, and he says, we're going to peacefully march to the Capitol, he makes that clear and at the same time uses language that says, you know, perhaps the election is being stolen or, 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 you know, the votes aren't being counted or they're certifying a fraudulent election, that, that kind of rhetoric. Um, I, I, that, that, again, that, that's the leap that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of shaky at here. Um, and saying that, okay, so if he says, this is what's happening, this is a dangerous situation, they're doing this inside the Capitol. I mean, that's all is right to say that. And then he says, let's peacefully march to the Capitol. I, I, I don't understand how that, purposely incite someone to get to the gates and and start bashing it down and start, you know, hitting people and forcing your way. And I I don't get that leap. But he's not because that's not all he said. He also said, you have to take your country back. You you can't you can't lie down. I think he said, I, I, I mean, I don't have the script in front of me. If I did, I could point out words, but he didn't just say, let's peacefully march. And as I understand it, he said it maybe once or twice in an hour long speech where he was saying we need to take our country back. Again, I don't I don't want to put words in his mouth. And I don't want to I don't want to um, insist on a script that I don't have in front of me. But but a lot of the words were about um, were were much more incendiary than we have to peacefully walk down. And again, I think it's context. If this were ever to go to trial, I don't think it will. I think there may be other things that might, but I certainly don't think that this will. If it were to ever go to trial, the issue of whether or not he incited the crowd would be a question of fact for a jury to determine. And um, my sense if we were on the jury together, we would come up with different decisions. But, you know, that's all about the First Amendment, right? It's okay that we can disagree as long as we can disagree with respect. 
Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, I think it will be interesting to see um, if, if this does go, go to trial, what the eventual outcome will be um, based on the full range of evidence, which I think either of us really, really have here. Um, right. So next, I wanted to, to sort of move on and talk a bit about prior restraint, which is when the government prohibits speech or other expression before the, the speech or expression happens. So if you've seen the movie The Post, you'll know about the New York Times versus U.S. case where the Nixon administration tried to prevent the press from publishing confidential Vietnam War information. Um, another famous case regarding prior restraint was when um, the ACLU successfully defended the right of neo-Nazis to march. So can you explain the, the history of prior restraint, Lynn, and, and what kind of speech the government can and can't preemptively restrict? Absolutely. The Honestly, that the First Amendment was likely... Um, uh, first thought of it, it was it was an idea to to stop this concept of prior restraint because what prior restraint does is shut down speech before it happens. There's just only silence. There's there's no debate. There's no education. There's no information that goes back and forth. So prior restraint is abhorrent to the First Amendment. To shut down speech before it happens is abhorrent to the First Amendment. It eliminates the marketplace of ideas. It completely eliminates debate. Uh, the movie The Post was a fabulous movie. I suggest everyone also read the New York Times versus um, the United States case and the Pentagon, uh, uh, not the Pentagon Papers, but the New York Times um, um, case, which was about, um, uh, well, actually, which was about the prior restraint, and it is about the Pentagon Papers, in fact. Um, so that you can you can read that as well. So, um, and what the government did in the um, in the New York Times case was um, initially they wanted to stop the publication of the Pentagon Papers of the information from the Pentagon Papers. And in my book, I have a whole chapter about that, uh, and it's a it's a fascinating chapter. It reads like a spy novel um, to hear exactly what happened, how the Pentagon Papers came into being, how they were stolen where they were copied, what the New York Times did to protect itself. Um, and then they started to print these papers, and it was about the Vietnam War and the way the government tried to hide information about the Vietnam War. Uh, the New York Times wanted to print it. The government said, whoa, you can't. This is national security that's involved in here, and you can't print that. And it went to court, and um, the New York Times was prohibited by an injunction from, from reporting, uh, from, from printing any information about the Pentagon Papers, but it was only the New York Times. So then the New York, then the Washington Post got the information and they printed it. And then that that court, because the government went to court for that as well, that court said, OK, you can go ahead and print it. So in these two courts that were having these two different decisions about whether or not the um, Pentagon paper, the information on the Pentagon papers could be printed. And ultimately, the, the it went to the Supreme Court very quickly, very fast decision. Um, and, the, and the Supreme Court said, this is information that is important for our polity, that's important for our, our politics and our government. And people have the right to know that you can't shut down information. You can't extend a prior restraint unless it is under um, a, a under, uh, there's, a, there's a huge um, wall that you have to breach in order to do that. It's a really important thing that our our polity and our politics and our government and our people understand what's going on. So um, they said, you know, the, the go ahead and print and the New York Times finished since its printing and the New York uh, post finished, finished its printing, and it really probably moved the end of the Vietnam War along, um, along quite quickly. Um, many years 
Many years later? Yeah, many years later in um, in Skokie, Illinois, the um, Nazis wanted to march in Skokie. And at the time, this is in the 19, late 1970s. Um, and at that time in uh, in Skokie, a lot of Holocaust, Jewish Holocaust survivors lived there. And so the Nazis specifically uh, uh chose that that place to march and to um and to speak of their you know issues of white supremacy which is you know uh, uh, with racial and religious animus and um the people in Skokie did not want that to happen it would have been very traumatic for them and they went to court and ultimately actually ultimately the march didn't happen in Skokie it ended up in happening in Chicago and no one showed up um which is sort of interesting but the ACLU took it on and the ACLU um, um, insisted that the Nazis have a right to their political speech. While it may be very painful for the people in Skokie, the Nazis have a right to their political speech. And that's really sort of at the crux of the First Amendment, that the First Amendment, um, as I said, the default option is to protect speech. And, the, and under First Amendment jurisprudence, we only shut down speech in very, very limited circumstances. And the fact that speech is going to be offensive to some or hurtful um, is not enough to shut down speech. There has to be a really good reason. One of those is incitement that we that we just spoke about. Another another type of speech that is that is shut down are these things called fighting words, which is almost assaultive speech. You think about it as um, a one-to-one -one speech and uh, fighting words is almost like someone's got a fist in front of someone trying to provoke them to response, to respond to them. And another type of speech that can be shut down is something called true threats. And true threats can be analogized to, to terrorizing speech. True threats will put someone in fear of their life or liberty. So in those situations, we can shut down speech. But those are so limited um, because the whole point is that the the best remedy to bad speech is more speech, that we need to keep the marketplace of ideas open and robust so that um, so that the so that bad ideas can can wither and the good ideas can ultimately can ultimately prevail. Clearly, that's an idealistic view. Of course, it is. But it's still, to my mind, the the best way of of handling things. If we shut down, if we shut down speech, we're not shut downing, shutting down the hate and we're not shutting down the vitriol. We're just putting it underground. Better to have it above ground where we can see it and identify it and try to work with it. And it's it's important to note here um, that the, the fact that, um, you know, the that the ACLU um, defended the right of the neo-Nazis to march doesn't mean that they they agreed at all with what the neo-Nazis had to say, um, or or felt that even the neo-Nazis should be free from the consequences of of what came about from their march. It just it, it simply means that shutting down um, the, and forcibly stopping them from exercising the, the the rights that everyone throughout the history of the United States has has enjoyed. Um, that would be a step too far. It's it's really striking to see, you know, just how far the ACLU has moved on this. Um, recently, I think they they published something that says um, that they have to ensure that something um, aligns with their values before they take on a free speech case. Now, 
Um, well, and- honestly, it came that all came from the Nazi the Nazi march. As a result of that, they um, many of their supporters at the time were Jewish people. Um, I don't know what their supporters, you know, what what the what the demographics are of their of their supporters now. But at the time, the Jewish community was very supportive of the ACLU. And after their um, defense of the Nazis' march on Skokie, they lost a lot of their financial support. So th- that all that is really still as a result of that case. Yeah, and that that is really disheartening because I mean you'd think that for for an organization their first value is free speech and the people um, backing that organization shouldn't be swayed by what the content of that speech is when the the first and foremost priority is to protect speech regardless of the content. Um, so that that is a really really sad um, sad state of affairs when when um, you know an organization as important as the ACLU can be subject to to abandoning their most core value. Um, in in that sort of situation um but but anyway um moving on to another hot hot free speech issue at the moment um it which is social media censorship now mm-hmm. obviously companies like facebook and twitter are private companies and thus aren't bound by the first amendment um but at the same time they are protected by section 230 meaning that they can't be sued for libel based on the content on their platform so I wanted to ask, to what extent can they police and regulate content on their page before Section 230 no longer applies? I mean, for example, someone can say, sue the New York Times for libel based on what they publish because they get to choose what goes on their website. However, you can't sue Gmail for an email someone sends you because Gmail doesn't police their content. So is there a, a limit to how much Facebook or Twitter can regulate content, especially if it's politically motivated um, regulation before Section 230 no longer applies? Not currently. Um, and, um, not currently. Section 230, uh, protects the, protects the social media and protects the ISPs pretty exclusively right now. Um, whether or not that's going to change, we have a situation in both Florida and Texas right now where, where both states have tried to, um, create state law, um, um, in contravention to, to Section 230, which, um, which does impose liability on, uh, on the social media platforms. Um, um, the Fifth Circuit, um, in Texas for the Texas, um, law has found that the, the, the law is constitutional. But I believe there's still an injunction in place, so it's not being applied. And the 11th Circuit in Florida found that the the law is not constitutional. Um, the Supreme Court's going to have to make a determination on whether and uh, whether or not Section 230 precludes the states from um, from doing it from from you know uh, imposing liability on social media platforms. And then it's going to fall back where it belongs in Congress's lap to see whether or not they want to um, modify, amend the protections in Section 230. Um, okay, but besides um, besides sort of the, the, the Supreme Court um, interpretation or, or states trying to trying to prevent that, um, is there is there any language specifically in Section 230 that that specifies um, to the, the extent to which, um, you know, you know what what kind of companies it protects obviously it protects social media companies because they typically don't have any control it's they're just an open providing an open platform but at the point that they start to pick and choose when when do they stop being social media companies and become publishers is there a, a guideline that, that differentiates those two 
not currently. There is there is not um, uh, there's not an indication of I mean, you know uh, uh, their their editorial um, and for their own editorial content and uh, First Amendment content according to the Eleventh Circuit is is basically based on those algorithms, right? Because they create algorithms that that um, that indicates that they have some editorial and curating control over the over the platform um in the fifth circuit um they they dismissed that as nonsense and that the curating um is 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 effectively censorship even though censorship actually is a word that can only be applied to to the government so um currently no there's there's not there aren't limitations on when and how um a social media platform can be uh, can be um held liable for its its curating um i think maybe where you're where you're going with this a little bit is, is if they don't follow their own policies is that when they can be uh, they can be effectively sued and um so far no that may be an amendment to um to section 230 um and and you know the the fallout from that who knows you know they have there's they've so many posts how you know actually controlling the posts and and following um you know strict guidelines may may be overly burdensome and maybe what that will mean is it will reduce their uh, their curation at all and who knows where that's going to lead? So the answer to your question is it's it's just not right now. The the answer is they can do what they want, and um, maybe ultimately Congress is going to address Section two thirty and make some and make some adjustments to it. Yeah, and I, I think this is where we actually agree probably the most. Um, because I I mean I wasn't aware of the full details the way you explained it of the Texas and the Florida case um, where um, social social media companies or, or liability on social media companies for what goes on their platform. So, I mean, as a, as, as someone who's long advocated a free market perspective, um, I, I don't think that there's any, any role a government can, can has in, in stepping in and saying to a private corporation, you know, this is how you must set your policies, or if you want this kind of content on your platform only that you can't have that or, or that sort of thing. And, and, you know, the stringest protections, um, for, for companies in, in that regard. Um, so, and I think, I mean, if if you don't like it, you don't like a particular social media platform, or or you find the content on there to be offensive, um, you know, as with as with anything else, either you stop using it or you create your own alternative if if you're you know you you want to challenge them, and you know that's that that's the same thing with with every other company and every other consumer product in our life. Um, if you don't like any of the smartphone choices out there, um, then you can either not own a smartphone or you can create your own smartphone. Um, but you know you don't get to tell Apple what it has to put in its iPhone, and the same way you don't get to tell Twitter exactly what its editorial guidelines ought to be. I think you're right. I think that that we do agree on this. See, we can always find common ground. Um, I think we do agree uh, on this. And um, you know, President Trump and Truth Social is is the perfect example, isn't it? He was kicked off Twitter, and he said, "Fine, here's my own." Um, okay, good for him. And I think that's the way that it should work. So I, I do agree with you. I think that um, I I am a fan of Section 230, and think it should stay just the way it is. Absolutely. And, and, and on that note, um, those are, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Lynn. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for listening to the economics review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.